Uh, when you first look at me, I imagine you probably thought to yourself, now there's a guy who probably knows a lot about hip-hop. <laughs> well, looks can be deceiving. I know you're surprised, but I'm actually not an expert in hip-hop. Uh, I know just enough about it, actually, to make myself look like a fool. In the early days of hip-hop, in the 80s and 90s, there was a role that emerged in concerts, and this role was called the hype man. Anyone know what that is? Well, after the first act, actually, people like Jay-Z got their start as hype men. Uh, after the first act, but before the headliner came on stage, the hype man would go out. And his job was to get the audience, the assembly, the congregation of rap enthusiasts, uh, hyped about the headlining performer. And so he would go out and he would get them riled up, energetic, roaring, and ready to just rock out with whoever was about to come on stage. And they were high-energy people, and they would come out and they would chant things like, raise your hands in the air, make some noise, and everybody would get loud. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. <laughs> they would shout, hey, and the audience would go, Either way, that works. You know, it's, it's not entirely unlike church. David comes up. He reads from the word. He ends the word of the Lord, to which you respond enthusiastically. Amen. Thanks be to God. I'll take amen. I'll cue you at some point in the sermon, amen, and that's when you can jump on it. Be, be watching for it. It'll be right when you're about to fall asleep. But the hype man was a hired servant. He was a hired hand. His role was not to draw attention to himself, but to get a bunch of people really excited to place their attention on someone else, a more important person, the headlining act. So they would work really hard at generating enthusiasm, enthusiasm and then pass off the glory to someone else as they walked off stage and entered into the background. Well, brothers and sisters, as we turn to the scriptures, we recognize that this role in hip-hop was not an innovation, but rather a retrieval from the scriptures. They got it from the Bible. When we encounter John, whose stage name was the Baptist, we are encountering... It gets better from here. We are encountering the greatest hype man who ever lived because he served the greatest person who ever lived and who still lives. John's entire job was to make much of someone else and get Israel, according to verse 31, ready to receive the Messiah. So let's look at our text this morning. We'll pray for a number of things, and then we'll keep going. Look at me, uh, look at the text with me at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, Who are you? 
We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as the prophet Isaiah said. Let's pray. O oh God and gracious Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you not just for your word, but for the things it reveals to us. We thank you for the way that the saints have come before us. That we can look at the example of men like John the Baptist and see how they could point to your glorious and beloved son. And Lord, we ask this morning as we walk through your word together that you would just illumine our minds to your truth and fill our hearts with your joy and give us a desire to worship you because that's what we're here to do this morning. Empower me by your spirit to preach your word to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, our first point this morning is the identity of John the Baptist. Who was this guy? That's what these people are asking. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that uh, John, the author of this gospel, assumes, because he already has access to these other gospels, he assumes that you have at least some background knowledge of who John the Baptist is. He's not going to fill in all the details for us. So what I'd actually like to do this morning is just briefly look at John in the Gospel of Matthew. Of course, you could go to all the Gospels to get a full picture. But we're just going to look at what Matthew tells us about John as a bit of background to help us understand our own passage this morning. So let's look at Matthew chapter 3. I think we have a slide here. Read with me here. Uh, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said... The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So what do we see with John? Well... Uh, John appears in the wilderness, he's preaching good news, he's preaching that the kingdom of God is coming, and in preparation for that, he's telling people to repent, that's to leave their life of sin behind and return to their God. And so he's preaching repentance and he's baptizing those who repent, and it tells us that all Jerusalem, Judea, and the region about the Jordan River all of these untold thousands are flocking to this strange man in camel's hair preaching in the wilderness. Let's keep looking at Matthew chapter 11. We'll see just a little bit more background here. Matthew chapter 11, verse 9. This is Jesus speaking to some crowds about John. He says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he 
is Elijah, who is to come. So Jesus actually does something really neat here. He points us back to a prophecy in Malachi. Malachi was the last prophet to prophesy. I think we have, a, a, I think we have it on a, on a slide. Malachi 3.1? Maybe not. Yes, we do. So Jesus actually quotes this right there. This is God speaking. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So Jesus is going to the crowds, and he's saying, Hey, this guy, John the Baptist, he was predicted in the Old Testament. He's really important, and his job was to prepare the way before me. And even more so, he goes to the next chapter of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, to tell us something else about the Baptist. Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, it's interesting here because Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is what Malachi 4, 5 is talking about. Now, he doesn't literally mean that Elijah has descended from heaven and John the Baptist is literally Elijah. He's using figurative language here. Uh, the Gospel of Luke tells us John the Baptist comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's a, a figure, a kind of prophet. And he's the prophet whose job it is to make straight the way of the Lord. So, dear friends, let's think about our faith. The Christian faith is a religion which is rooted in history. Uh, you know, I think sometimes people imagine that Jesus Christ like popped out of nowhere, inventing a new religion with entirely new ideas. But the reality is far different. Uh, Christianity is the unfolding of an eternal plan of God, which Mark mentioned briefly in his prayer. The unfolding of a plan which God created in eternity past. Consider Ephesians chapter 1. By the way, we're going to touch a lot of scripture this week. I just couldn't help myself. Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In him, that's Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. You see, what this is teaching us is that God has been working and executing his plan throughout all of human history. You know, it's not as though the law failed and Jesus is plan B. Jesus is plan A. And God is working his will even today throughout history. And so that's exactly where Paul goes in Galatians chapter 4. Part of this plan was to send his son into the world to die for the ungodly. This is what he says, but when the fullness of time had come, translation, at the precise time that God had ordained in his plan, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so we might receive adoption as sons. God sent Jesus to die so we could be adopted into his family, so we could be forgiven. And it happened exactly when God determined. 
And you say, okay, Pastor, well, uh, if there is some kind of plan which the Almighty is executing throughout history, and if the coming of Christ was the climax of that plan, then shouldn't there be some expectation of his coming? Shouldn't there be some evidence ahead of time that this is what God was doing? Maybe even some evidence in the moment that this is what God is doing. Well, I'm so thankful for your astute questions. Last week we saw how uh, Eric showed us how Christ is prefigured in even a small part of the Old Testament like Esther. Uh, we know the whole Old Testament points us to Christ. And so here, even in our text in John 1, we see that the Jews of his day had certain expectations based off of their understanding of the Old Testament about a Messiah to come. And actually, they even had expectations about the coming of his hype man. It's in the Hebrew. Uh, there is evidence that God was working his plan. Now, uh, I'd like you to put on your thinking cap with me for just a moment. And I want you to place yourself in the first century as a Jew. You've had nation after nation take over your land. For 600 years, the kingdom of Israel has not existed. It's just been taken over by nation after nation. Currently, you're under Roman control. For 400 years, God has not sent a prophet. Malachi was the last one. So for 400 years, your people have had radio silence from God. Waiting, hoping, praying that God would do something for his people. And then John begins his ministry, <laughs> preaching in the wilderness dressed in camel's hair, calling on sinners to repent from their sins, return to their God or face God's judgment. It's not a, not a message you would expect the crowds to embrace, and yet the crowds are elated. They're filled with joy because in the preaching of John, they hear the voice of their God for the first time in hundreds of years. And please, this morning, if you hear the voice of your God, do not harden your hearts, but embrace the joy set before you. God finally sent a prophet to his people, and they repent, and they seek baptism. And John, this great hype man, says, yeah, you think this is great? You ain't seen nothing yet. He says, just wait till you see who's about to come on stage. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, for the Son of David and the Lamb of God who comes to remove the sins of the world. Please put your hands together for the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Brothers and sisters, let me introduce you to Jesus Christ, the Messiah the Savior of the world. And so we think back to Malachi 3, and it tells us right there, Behold, and God is speaking to us in Malachi 3, and he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And if you read on, you recognize that 
He comes in a way they wouldn't expect and probably aren't going to like, but that's in chapter 2 of John. We'll get there in a few weeks. And so we see that on the basis of Malachi and other prophets, the people and their leaders were expecting God to do something. In verses 19 to 23, we see what kind of expectations these were. So John's out, he's baptizing, he's got these crowds that are flocking to him. The religious authorities in Jerusalem are like, not super thrilled about that because they're the ones in authority. So they send a delegation to John in the wilderness and they come asking questions. And they say to him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, I am not the Christ. So just remember now that there are actual thousands of people, all Jerusalem, Judea, and the region about the Jordan, flocking to John, eating up his every word, and messianic expectations are high. John can just say, you know what? I am your Christ. And they would embrace him like that. And they would carry him all the way to Jerusalem on a throne. And it wouldn't have been that hard for him to do. But he doesn't. He doesn't overstep his role. He says, I am not the Christ. And then they say, well, are you Elijah? And he says something kind of surprising, particularly based off of what we've already read. He says, I am not. You say, well, I thought Jesus said he was Elijah. I thought Malachi said he was Elijah. Well, I think the remarkable thing here about John the Baptist is that in his humility, he didn't even fully grasp his own role. He came as an Elijah-type figure, and Christ clearly understood him in his role, even if John didn't. And that teaches us that John doesn't have to fully understand his role in order to fulfill his role, does he? It's not unlike the high priest who prophesies that it's better that one man dies then the whole nation perish, and he thinks he's talking about the Romans destroying the nation because of Jesus, but in reality, he's talking about Jesus being the savior of the world so that the whole nation doesn't perish. So they ask him, okay then, are you the prophet? You say, what, what prophet are you talking about? It comes from Deuteronomy 18, we won't go there, but you can go read Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, uh, they're expecting a prophet to come because Moses tells them in Deuteronomy 18, God will send you a prophet like me from among your people. But John says, I am not him. So they're getting a little frustrated. They say, okay, well, we need to bring an answer to the people who sent us, so tell us, what do you have to say about yourself? And John answers by quoting another prophet. I know this is a lot of prophets that we're dealing with today, just... Bear with me. He quotes Isaiah the prophet who wrote these words 700 years earlier. Let's take a look at this prophecy. Isaiah 40. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the context that John is quoting. And there's an original context to the prophecy, and then there's a greater fulfillment that John is pointing us to. 
In the moment, Isaiah was prophesying about the return of Israel from exile. If you remember, they had gotten expelled from the promised land because they abandoned God. And he's prophesying before that even happens that God will comfort his people. God will bring his people back to the promised land. And so he does under the Persians. And Isaiah's calling for a figurative construction of a highway to get God's people home. But you see, even in this original context, Isaiah wasn't just talking about the return of the Jews, but the return of God himself. Look at what Isaiah 40 says. It says, says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the path for our God. And the consequence in verse 5 of chapter 40 is that all flesh... Not just the Jews, but all flesh will behold the glory of the Lord. And so you keep reading in Isaiah and and it becomes clear that the return of his people foreshadows the return of God. And if you keep reading in the chapters that follow, Isaiah goes on to tell the story of a suffering servant of the Lord who's despised and rejected among men, who was pierced for our iniquities and crushed for our transgressions, that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. And he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. (laughs) And John says, I am just a voice crying in the wilderness. And my job is to point you to the suffering servant. My job is to point you to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm not significant except that I fulfill the role that God has given to me. And that's to where we will turn in verse 24, the role of John the Baptist. Pick up with me in verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. Then John answered them. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So the delegation continues their questioning, and uh, they're not getting a good answer on his identity, and so they ask him, Uh, They say to him, well, why are you baptizing if you're not Christ, Elijah, or the prophet? They're basically saying, John, you have all these thousands of people out here. Who do you think authorized you to do what you're doing? Because we're the authorities, and we don't remember doing that. And John, interestingly, basically responds by saying, hey, have I told you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Let me tell you how awesome he is. Which in one sense he's saying, actually God has authorized me to do this. In another sense, he's just fulfilling his role. He's pointing them to Jesus and he shows how truly insignificant he is in comparison. He says, that guy who's coming, he's standing among you already and you don't even recognize him. He says, that guy, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. Some of you may have heard this, but in that day, a Jewish disciple would do almost anything his master asked him to do. But he would not 
untie the straps of his sandals. That was something that only a slave was expected to do. It was just too degrading even for a student. But John here is saying that this guy who's coming, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. John, greatest of men born to women, Jesus says. I'm not worthy to be his slave. If you've ever spent some time on Twitter or other social media platforms, you'll know that uh, it's not exactly a place where you'll find this kind of humility. It's actually remarkable how arrogant and vitriolic people can be to one another on Twitter. I mean, they will say things to other people online that if you said in person to the kindest, most gentle person you know, they would slap you in a heartbeat. And I think in large part, it's because... Online, there's a certain degree of separation. There's a kind of veil of anonymity. The Twitter troll is comfortable saying things about others online because he's not looking them in the face and beholding the image of God as he says them. He's operating based off of a false knowledge, a digital representation as if this person wasn't human and worthy of respect. Well, in my life, and I think for similar reasons, I've had the opportunity to witness many approach God with the same arrogant and malevolent attitude. So often people will sit in judgment over God as if God had to conform to our expectations of him. As if God was just sitting around racking his brain thinking, how in the world do I make myself appealing to 21st century Westerners? People will say horrible, irreverent things about God, audaciously believing that God needs their approval. And these scoffers have no problem slandering God or his people. And I think the attitude, more than just arrogance, reveals a profound ignorance, just a complete lack of knowledge about God. Like a, like a person attacking someone through a laptop screen, they assume because they can't see God, they're free to say whatever they please without repercussions. And I think to myself, if you just had the faintest idea about who it is that you deride, you would never say such things. When we turn to the scriptures... We consider the attitudes of people when they encounter the living God. When they receive just a glimpse of his holiness and his glory, they tremble in fear. Consider Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a prophet. Chapter 6, Isaiah, verse 1. Consider his response to beholding God. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. We'll jump down to verse 4. And the foundation of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is trembling Upon seeing the king. 
Perhaps you remember, uh, we love our nativity scenes with our shepherds, but do you remember what happens when the shepherds see the glory of the Lord in Luke chapter 2? It says this, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And what happened? They were filled with great fear. Or perhaps you remember Peter, James, and John, uh, also known as Jesus' inside circle, Jesus' best buddies, and they go up with him onto the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus is transfigured, and his face becomes shining white, and his clothes become radiant. And what happens? They become trembling with fear, and Peter just starts stammering like an idiot because he doesn't know what to do. Perhaps you can think of John in Revelation chapter 1, and he receives a vision of the Lord. And it says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining at full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And then we look at John the Baptist. We remember Jesus said, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So how is it that John can be so content playing second fiddle to the new guy on the block? How can a man with multitudes coming to hear him preach so eagerly give up his ministry to another? How can a man about whom prophecies were written? Hey, you know, I'm I'm in Malachi, by the way. How can this guy look at Christ and honestly say, I am not worthy to be his slave? Because it's true. Like the saints of old, John has beheld the glory of the Lord. John recognizes the gap between a slave and a wealthy master pales in comparison to the infinite gap between sinful man and a holy, holy, holy God. And listen, it's not that John thinks little of himself. It's just that he recognizes how much greater God is. You see, John's humility is a direct consequence of his accurate theology, his knowledge of God. It's why theology is important. And so, dear brother and dear sister, the way to cultivate humility is not to sit around and beat yourself up. I'm the worst. I sinned again. Woe is me. No one loves me. I guess that's more like Eeyore. Now, the way to cultivate humility is to fix your eyes upon the King of glory. Because when you begin to just gain a glimpse of his glory and his holiness, arrogance is just going to feel silly. It's like if somehow I landed a pickup game against LeBron James and right off the bat I start talking trash, it would feel very, very silly to everyone. 
You see, John didn't cease to be great when he pointed others to Jesus Christ. That's why he was great. But even his own greatness could not compare to the greatness of the Son of God. If you want to be humble like Jesus, like John, study God, get to know God. Now, my wife and I this week were talking. She's been reading a book by Nancy Guthrie, and she mentioned that in the book she makes the point that the reason we look fondly on people like John the Baptist, I'm not related to her, by the way. Uh, (laughs) The reason we look fondly on John the Baptist and Jonathan, son of Saul, is because they recognized the role which God had given them, and they accepted it. I mean, consider Jonathan, for example. He was raised being told over and over, you are the next king of Israel. And he believed that until Samuel anointed David the next king of Israel. But unlike Saul, Jonathan didn't try to pin David to a wall with a spear to preserve his own kingdom for himself. What did he do? He recognized the Lord's anointed and he honored him. He embraced his secondary role. He loved David and made a covenant to support him and protected David from his own father. And so it was with John the Baptist who from birth had been told he was special He's been chosen for an important task. You're in the Old Testament. And right at the apex of his ministry with untold thousands coming to hear him preach, he beholds the far surpassing glory of the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. And beholding Christ, he points his followers away from himself and he invites them to worship the word made flesh. Like John, our highest calling as Christians, is to point others to Jesus Christ. But let me ask you this. Have you embraced the specific way in which God is calling you to fulfill that role? Jonathan could have said, yeah, well, I can serve God best as king. I can do a lot more as king than as number two. And John the Baptist could have said, yeah, I'm reaching thousands with my ministry. Why would I give this up for some Galilean carpenter? And listen, as a pastor... I'd be lying if I said I wasn't jealous of the roles that God has given to other pastors with bigger churches, greater platforms, speaking at conferences. And after four years of tough labor as your pastor, it feels miraculous that God has brought us to where we are today. And it's so great. And I I rejoice in it until I take my eyes off of Christ and I start to envy the roles that God has given to others. That's why you and I are called to fix our eyes on Christ, to make much of Christ and to embrace whatever role he has given you. Do you believe that he knows what's best for you? Let me ask you, what role has God given you with which to serve him? Maybe it isn't exactly what you envisioned. Are you fighting it? I'm going to do things my way. Or are you embracing it? Are you fulfilling it? As we turn to our final point today, we will see John fulfilling his role. Pick up with me in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Of God. So we see in verse 31 John's purpose, his role. I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. His job is to reveal Christ. And in this passage right here, he's going to do this in two ways. One, he's going to reveal to us Jesus' identity, and then he's going to show us two roles. It's not the only roles, but there are two roles. So let's consider the I. Identity. He says in verse 30, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He's saying, Jesus is younger than me. Jesus comes after me. But guess what? He's greater than me because he was before me. And Jesus later confirms this in chapter 8 when he says to the Jewish leaders, Before Abraham was, I am. He takes the eternal name of God for himself. In other words, John and Jesus are both saying that Jesus was a great example. Jesus was an exceptional man. Jesus was a godly prophet. But he wasn't just any of those things. Jesus was fully man and he was fully God. Jesus was the son of God in the flesh, which is why John closes in verse 34. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. He's now going to turn to the two roles of Jesus. The first role is Lamb of God. Uh, When I was in seminary, I was working as a pastoral intern at a church in Orlando, and uh, we were actually working on this text with the pastors. And while we were doing that, one of the pastors told a story that I'll never forget He said that he was at the supermarket, in line at the deli at the supermarket, and his kid, who was probably four at the time, stood up, and in front of all of the other shoppers, he stood up in the cart and yelled, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. (laughs) Uh, I wish I could have seen it. Well, John is you know, doing his thing, and he he sees Jesus. He's already baptized him. He already saw the Spirit of God descend on him like a dove, and he turns to his followers, and he sees Jesus, and like the kid in the story, he says, Behold, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, I just spent some time trying to show you how great and glorious, mighty, transcendent, and holy God is, How getting just a glimpse of his glory is enough to strike fear into the hearts of the bravest men. And because of that, it's always so remarkable to me that the Almighty should reveal himself as a helpless, sacrificial animal, as a lamb. Have you thought about that? And how much more remarkable is it that he takes on the role of a lamb for the very people who rebelled against him? 
And yet one of the inexplicable truths of the gospel is this, that the king of the universe loved you enough to suffer and die in your place, to forgive you of your sins, to be your sacrificial lamb. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is the lamb of God. Perhaps you can recall the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. And they're climbing the mountain together to go and sacrifice to the Lord. And as they get closer to the top, Isaac begins to get a little nervous. He says, hey, Dad, I'm looking around and I see some wood and I see some fire, but, you know, uh, I don't see any animals, Dad. What's going on? And Abraham turns to him and he says, the Lord will provide a lamb. And he does. But Abraham spoke better than he knew. God was still to provide a much greater lamb. Perhaps you think of the Israelites in Egypt and the angel of the Lord bringing judgment against wicked Pharaoh and his land, and yet all who sacrificed the Passover lamb in faith were passed over. God passed over their sins. He did not bring judgment against them. Perhaps you think of the many sacrifices at the temple dealing with the sins of the people. They were all pictures. They were all shadows. The saints of old offered those sacrifices to God in faith and God forgave their sins. But until Christ and the blood of Christ, he had not truly dealt with their sins. So John beholds the real Lamb of God, which all of that pointed us forward to. And God himself, taken on human flesh, would go to the cross in love for his creatures, where God the Son would bear the wrath of God the Father for the sins of people like me and like you. He's not just a lamb. He is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He died so you could live. Dear friends, there's only one way to be made right with God, and that is through the Lamb of God. There's only one way to be freed of your sins, and that is to die to self and live to Christ. And at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to die for sinners. And he desires that if you don't know him, that you should come forward to him and receive total forgiveness. He promises to remove your sins as far apart as the east is from the west because he earned your forgiveness on the cross. And in response to his grace, Jesus Christ calls his followers to leave behind their life of sin, to trust in him, and to follow. The good news is that the moment you believe in him, your sins are totally atoned for. Fully forgiven. But listen, Jesus wants all of you. He will not accept second place in your heart. He demands it all. He will not accept second place with your obedience. He wants it all. He will not accept second place on your schedule. He will not accept second place with what you do with your life. He calls you to live for him. And all these things, Jesus calls you to place him first and then yourself. To seek his glory, even when it comes at the cost of your own glory, even if it comes at the cost of your own life. Pastor, that sounds pretty steep. Sounds pretty impossible, actually. 
And you'd be right. No human is capable of honoring God in the way that he demands. But this is where there's even more good news. Sound like a car salesman. Because the Lamb of God who takes away your sin is also the one, John says, in verse 33, who baptizes not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. This is the second role that John shows us about Christ. He's the Lamb of God. He also baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. He not only calls us to live a new life in response to His grace, He grants you that new life through His Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, He describes it as being born again. You see, what seems impossible in our flesh when we're made alive, born again of the Spirit, simply becomes the fruit of God's grace in our lives. What Jesus commands, He enables through His Spirit. And this is why I love doing membership interviews and I love doing baptisms because I get to hear from you guys of how God has intervened in your lives, of how it is that you came to trust in Christ. So many of you have told me about your pre-Christian selves living like the world, living without a thought toward God's glory. But by God's grace, he saved you just as he has saved me. And suddenly, you've told me of new desires You wanted to glorify God. You wanted to know him better. You wanted to worship and adore him. And it felt strange because never before in your life has your desire been to know and worship God. And you wanted to tell others about him and give him glory. That's because you've been baptized in the spirit. That's the spirit of God working in you. Jesus saves us from the guilt of sin and he saves us from the power of sin. And you can see why John got so excited about this guy. And so John fulfilled his role. He successfully points all of these people to Jesus, the Lamb of God, the eternal Son of God, the Messiah. And he introduces the audience to the headliner of all headliners. And they are roaring and ready to worship the Messiah of the Jews. And then John walks off stage, out of the spotlight, fading from public memory, losing his crowds and his disciples to Jesus with a big smile on his face, rejoicing in God to have laid eyes on the Son of God his Messiah. John embraced the role of becoming lesser so that Christ might become greater. And in embracing the role given to him by the Father, humbling himself before God, he has been exalted by God and will be for eternity. Listen, if you're in Christ, you may not be a prophet, but you are a forerunner of Christ, or or not a forerunner of Christ, rather. We live in the year 2023. But like John, you are his hype man. Jesus has sent us into the world to make disciples, to reconcile sinners to the God who died in their place. Let me ask you, are you making much of Christ? Are you getting others excited for him? We don't have to talk about what we love. You don't have to force a grandparent to talk about their grandkids. You don't even have to ask them. They will just do it. 
even after you ask them to stop. Let me ask you, do you ever find yourself testifying to your friends about the Lamb of God who you believe died as a sacrifice in your place? The God whom you love? I'm not saying you have to awkwardly shoehorn Jesus into every conversation. But pray for opportunities, and when God grants them, seize them. For example, a year and a half ago, I had a couple of spiritual conversations with my neighbor. I invited him to our Life Explored evangelistic Bible study, and he politely declined. Wow, great success story, Pastor. We are inspired. Just this last week, a year and a half later, we're talking out in the front yard, and he says to me, hey, are you guys still doing that thing on Tuesday night? I said, no, it's on Friday now, but yes, you can come. <laughs> And I hope he's going to come on Friday. It's that simple. Just inviting somebody to church, inviting somebody to an evangelistic Bible study, having a cookout at your house, whatever it be. But let me ask you, parents. God has given you souls under your care. And we don't control their hearts, and we can't control their hearts. But we do reveal to our children our own hearts. Are you getting your kids excited about Jesus? Can they sense your excitement? I get to go worship Jesus today with my brothers and sisters. That's a contagious attitude. Or is it, it's Sunday again. I don't want Hunter to call me this week. I guess we'll go to church. Come on, kids. Because that's also contagious. Listen, we've all been given the task to make much of Christ. I promise I'm almost done. We've all been given the task to make much of Christ, to seek his glory over our own. It's not something that you have to be a professional pastor or a prophet or a hype man to accomplish. Brothers and sisters, let's strive to be a people zealous to make much of our God. On Sunday morning, and throughout the week. Let's pray.